Even if your broker has slipped into bankruptcy, there is nothing to prevent certain big players from reaching in and taking the assets away from your broker. Hello everyone, I'm Chris Martinson, CEO of Peak Prosperity. Today we're gonna to be diving back into The Great Taking. This is part three in our series. If you haven't seen parts one and two, you really should. And this is the work that was spurred, uh, kicked off, spurred off by David Rogers Webb. That's his book, The Great Taking. It's available for free download. Read it if you want. I've been doing uh, what I think he wanted everybody to do, which is following the references and seeing where they go. Today, we have to talk about this provision called Safe Harbor. This is a really important topic. Remember, we're going into all of this because we were concerned, how was this going to happen exactly? How was the WF going to accomplish goal number one in their 2030 agenda here, which is you'll own nothing and be happy? Um, how will you own nothing? How will this happen? Now we know how legally it could happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but we should understand it. But we always knew that there was something off in this story, namely that there is a big giant gap between the liabilities of the United States, but also all of Western civilization at this point, and the actual stuff that we would use to offset those liabilities against, right? Assets and liabilities. The asset, the income in this story is GDP and all the other productive assets that make up that GDP. And we have this debt levels, which I have helpfully extrapolated with my superior artistic capabilities with that purple line going up like that we're still waiting for anybody to explain how this is going to work out. And, and there's nothing but crickets, right? Nobody, nobody can explain this. In fact, even Jerome Powell has said, this is unsustainable. We all know it's unsustainable. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey, that's me. Hello, savvy individuals. Are you tired of sifting through the noise to find reliable information? Well, look no further. Welcome to peak prosperity, where we're not just a trusted source of actionable information. We're your passport to a community that's large and vibrant and full of like-minded folks just like you. Ever wish you could cut through the noise and get to the heart of the matter? Our team provides unbiased and trusted analyses of the news and events. Stay informed without the spin, empowering you to make decisions based on facts, not fiction. At Peak Prosperity, we offer more than just a steady stream of insights. We've fostered a large and growing community that's buzzing with energy. Connect, collaborate, and learn from people who share your passions. But that's not all. We're actually here to help you become more resilient, guiding you to make better, more well-informed decisions. In a world full of uncertainties, a Peak Prosperity membership is your key to exactly the information you need to prosper. Are you ready to join a community that's not just about information, but about empowerment and integrity? Subscribe to Peak Prosperity today and unlock a world of unbiased analysis, resilience, and meaningful connections. Because it's not just a subscription. It's a commitment to your success and the health and wealth of your family and business. And now, back to our content. You don't have to, anybody can figure this out. That is a math problem. So how does the math problem resolve? That's what we're going to get to here. And so, unfortunately, this is a fairly dark tale um, in the sense that Self-interested parties and lobbyists got together and over time they chipped and whittled away at some of the most foundational things, including you don't own your stocks and bonds. You have what's called a security entitlement. So we examined your entitlement claims in episode one, and then we went on to episode two and said, well, if I'm just a claimant in a chain of legal custody and there are senior claimants above me, who are they? And what does the laws have to say about senior claims? So We'll revisit a little bit of that today, but not a lot because that's in episode two. So we talked about qualified financial contracts, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Editorially, I really wish we didn't have to do this at all. This is way too complicated by design, but it's in that complexity. This is going to be that fine print that you didn't read on your insurance contract that maybe you realize you should have read. So this is how the law works. And unfortunately, we all now know that we live in a world where we have terms and conditions for everything from like, I just want to play solitaire on my phone. It comes with terms and conditions that consign your firstborn son to like this strange company and, you know, opens all your phone records and, and your most private photos because you just wanted to play a game, right? Let alone what happens when you sign the T's and C's for using an Apple product or service or using Instagram, et cetera. They're onerous and I get it. Nobody wants to 
feel like we're being preyed upon, but at least when it comes to skipping over, say, the Apple terms of services, you're pretty sure that they're not going to come and steal your firstborn or all your assets. This is the kind of fine print you need to know about. At least to say, you know what, Chris, I look at that, I've seen it, I don't think that's going to happen, here's why, but I need you to understand this and reject it on your own terms. Now, we're going to have to get to this one just a little bit later, but we'll get we'll touch on a piece of this today. What actually happens during a bankruptcy of either your broker or one of these other security intermediaries that's layered between you and the actual issuer of that security? And there could be many of them, clearing parties, um, different intermediaries, etc. And then this is what we're going to get to today is this uh, was, well, what happens when this thing called financial stability is invoked? This is a new change that came about as a consequence of the Dodd-Frank Act. This is now part of the Uniform Commercial Code. It's been woven in throughout Title 11 and Title 12, particularly, which are federal titles. So it's federal law, Uniform Commercial Code. We're going to have to look at how these things come together. Now, again, if you haven't seen Parts 1 and 2 of this, Part 1, these are screenshots from my website, peakprosperity.com. And I have always, and this will be true today as well. I'm going to go through the basic stuff and then I'm going to talk about, I don't like talking about problems. I don't like defining problems. I like to know what the issues are so that we can get to solutions. Part one is the public thing where I'm telling you what the issues are. And then part two at my website, we go through and we wrestle with and we define what are the solutions. What can you do realistically? And I always structure things easy, medium, hard. So part one We have solutions for subscribers. Part two, we had solutions for subscribers, and today will be no different for part three. Now, what we're going to be talking about today is buried deep within these things. I mentioned titles 11 and 12, which are the bankruptcy and uh, banking laws, and as well, the Uniform Commercial Code, particularly Articles 8 and 9. Uh, Article 8 is investment securities. That's a 1994 law. It's been amended along the way. And then, of course, we have also secured transactions that 2010, that is the year of the Dodd-Frank Act. And as well, there are now case precedents that have already used these laws all the way, rung them up to the Supreme Court, particularly around this idea of safe harbor. So you see that court's broad interpretation of definition of securities contracts promotes expansive scope of the bankruptcy code safe harbor. Now, that's going to be a future episode. I think the one right after this one, maybe, maybe two, where we're going to talk about this case law, because you have to understand that when somebody says they're going to do something, they write the laws down and then they do it and they test it in a court of law. It's no longer a valid thing to say, you know, I don't think they would do that. They've already done it. They said they were going to do it and then they did it. So that means it probably happened. So it's already happened. The question would be, do you really think they would do it to take your stuff? Well, that's uh, something each of us gets to resolve for ourselves. Now, this Dodd-Frank Act, uh, oppositely named, of course, it's like many things, it's called the Consumer Protection Act, and um, it does the exact opposite of that. I, I, it may have started out with some good intentions, but oof, did it ever go off the reservation? I'll show you exactly how. And Today, we're going to be talking about some things uh, just to show you the title 12 is really big and onerous. I have not read the whole of title 12. Look at that. Chapter 41, expedited funds availability, 42, low income housing preservation, resident ownership. I've not read these. All I care about is I got down to chapters 52, which is emergency economic stabilization. And that's parts 5201 through 5261. And then as well, chapter 53. Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection, that's the Dodd-Frank, from 5301 to 5641. I think you see a lot of lines in that one, a lot of subparts. So was it mission accomplished? This I want you to think about this question as we go along here. I want you to ask yourself as we run through this, did the purpose of the Dodd-Frank Act actually get achieved? And the purpose was it was intended to curb the extremely risky financial industry activities that led to the financial crisis of 2007 and eight. Its goal was, and still is, to protect consumers and taxpayers from egregious practices like predatory lending. And that's from Investopedia. So that's how it got billed. That's how it's still kind of talked about. But let's see if it actually accomplished that. You be the judge. All right. So first thing, this is a complicated story. 
I'm going to do my best to piece it together. I've been wrestling with it all week, trying the different parts out. Let me give this a shot. First up, we go to um, U.S. Title 12, Chapter 52, called Emergency Economic Stabilization. And you can see there the at the top part, it says it has we, the purposes, the definitions, and it's got three big subchapters. So the purpose, the purposes of this chapter are, one, to immediately provide authority and facilities that the Secretary of the Treasury can use to restore liquidity and stability to the financial system of the United States. So emergency, you know, we just they felt in the wake of the great financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9, 10, that, that they just didn't have enough authority. So they've given a whole bunch of and enumerated a bunch of new powers, and some of these powers are so extraordinary, they override the bankruptcy code. Now things get messy, because here's the thing. Things like the bankruptcy code are careful multi-hundred-year products. Like people have been doing bankruptcy for a long time. And contract law and bankruptcy law and all of these various laws have been tuned and battled over and sort of battle tested. So to come along and go, it's different this time. You know what? We should just heave a bunch of new powers over to this new thing we're defining. It'll all work out great. <laughs> That's what's at stake here. Uh I wouldn't mess around with this uh, like they are, but here we are. And that's why we're talking about it. So it says, uh, to ensure that such authority and such facilities are used in a manner that, one, protects home values, college funds, retirement accounts, and life savings. We're going to see if that's happened or not, whether it protected things like retirement accounts and, and life savings. B, preserves home ownership and promotes jobs and economic growth. Well, those are kind of vague things, the promote jobs. Um how do you do that? C, maximizes overall returns to taxpayers of the United States, and D, provides public accountability for the exercise of such authority. Okay, kind of weird, because one of the first times they use something like this, right, Bear Stearns goes down and they pull it in, and it gets pushed off into a special vehicle fund on the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and that's the last I heard about. Like, you can't, like, there's no audit. You can't, like, there's zero transparency. Like, what assets did you take and what did you do with them? And why did silver get slammed so hard in the aftermath of that? What's no transparency whatsoever. But anyway, this is what they're saying, emergency economic stabilization. Now you're going to see a theme popping up here. And the theme is stability to restore stability of the financial system. You'd think, well, that seems like a really big, important term. And you'd be right. The question is, is that term ever defined anywhere? Financial stability. So much hinges on that. Is it defined? What is financial stability? Does that mean stocks only go up to the right? Does that mean, I don't know, what is it? It's not defined. Spoiler alert. Okay, um, so buried within that USC code uh, at 5237, this is weird. Look at the authority. The Securities and Exchange Commission shall have the authority under securities laws, such as da-da-da, to suspend by rule, regulation, or order the application of statement number 157 of the Financial Accounting Standards Board, FASB, for any issuer, as such term is defined elsewhere, um, uh, or with respect to any class or category of transaction. Uh, you, know, anything, you know, you don't like how your bonds are valued? Mm, we're going to suspend this mark-to-market account. You tell us what they're worth. Oh, your, or your derivatives. Don't like how they're valued? Well, it's due to financial stability, you go ahead and just tell us what they're worth there, big boy, right? <laughs> and they say here that it is necessary that they're going to respect to any class or category of, of transaction if the commission, the commission determines that it is necessary or appropriate in the public interest and is consistent with the protection of investors. Here's the thing. It's really never in anybody's interest to tell lies, right? particularly financial lies. Numbers are numbers. So this whole idea that they get to just like at whim because they've declared uh, financial stabilities at stake, that some entities can just totally ignore mark-to-market accounting, right? Which is be kind of like, um, don't even get me started on this compared to what just happened in the court system vis-a-vis -vis Trump taking out a loan, paying the loan back, and then declaring that that was inappropriate somehow. And uh, this is this is a whole nother level of, of grift beyond that. It's astonishing. 
So let's go into this mess. Two subchapters here we have to get to in chapter 53. Subchapter one, financial stability. Second is subchapter two, orderly liquidation authority. Other interesting things down there, but this will be enough for today. Um, so the Financial Stability Oversight Council is now established by this thing as of July 21st, 2010. There will be this FSOC and it shall have voting members. Each shall have one vote and it shall be, consist of the Secretary of the Treasury. That is the chairperson of the council. Um, it includes the chairman of the Board of Governors. That's from the Federal Reserve. So it's the chairman. That would be Jay Powell right now. Secretary of the Treasury as of today would still be Janet Yellen. Uh, the comptroller of the currencies on there, the director of the bureau, but that's not the FBI. That's the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection in this case. The chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the chairperson of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, chairperson of the Commodities Future Trading Commission, FS, uh, um, CFTC, and so on. So we have this Financial Stability Oversight Council. Hmm. This gets made. And so now we have this financial stability council. Well, what do they do? Well, they've got some authorities here, some authority. So purposes of the council are in general are a in green to identify risks to the financial system of the United States that could arise from the material financial distress or failure or ongoing activities of large interconnected bank holding companies or non-bank financial companies. That would be brokers and financial intermediaries, clearinghouses, DTCC, things like that. Um, or that could arise outside the financial services marketplace. So basically anything that could hit or impinge upon financial stability. Again, what is financial stability? What are these risks to the financial stability? Well, wouldn't it be good before we, how do you identify a risk to something that's not defined? This is really vague and weird, and there's a lot of authority invested in this council as long as they can pull the trigger of saying, oh, there's financial stability is at stake. You know what? Companies don't have to mark to market accurately. Maybe they can even fib about their actual earnings if necessary, possibly. Who knows, right? You know, in the interest of financial stability, it would be awkward right now for somebody's reelection for stocks to not go anywhere but up, so lie away you know, you magnificent seven, who knows, right? It's really, really bizarre that this stuff has been written so vaguely and has given so much authority to basically fib because it would be good for investors. Very weird. B, uh, the purpose of the council is to promote market discipline by eliminating expectations on the part of shareholders, creditors, and counterparties of such companies that the government will shield them from losses in the event of failure. Hmm. Well, if that was the plan, I would just note that when this was all put in place in 2010 to today in 2024, derivatives are now multiples larger, too big to fail banks or even too much bigger. And everything that they would say that they were trying not to somehow signal that the government would shield these counterparties in the event of losses or failure they actually did the opposite of all that. And I'll show you exactly how they did that. This should not have been like a, if that was your purpose, anybody writing the laws that you're about to see that followed that purpose of this council, right? To promote market discipline, right? You would have to be a complete moron not to understand that writing the laws the way they wrote them was going to do the opposite of promoting market discipline. It was going to encourage massive risk-taking, which is what we've seen, of course. All right. Let's go now to 5323. This is authority to require supervision of regulation of certain non-bank financial companies. Oh, it sounds boring, but it's actually kind of important here. Um, it's interesting here. They say uh, a U.S. non-bank financial company supervised by the Board of Governors says if the council determines that material financial distress at the U.S. non-bank financial company or the nature, scope, size, scale, concentration, interconnectedness, or mix of activities of the, of the U.S. non-bank financial company could pose a threat to the financial stability of the United States. Well, then they take a vote and they say, gosh, I think that this thing needs to get regulated so they can step in anytime they want, whether or not uh, this company is actually already in default. So this is an extraordinary power that they can step in this, you know, group of basically government employees 
could just get together and go, you know, I really think, I really think that broker over there looks, does it look like a threat to stability to you? Sure does. And they can do things with that. They can carve it up. They can sell off assets. They can do things that it's extraordinary power. Again, hundreds of years of sort of like understanding of contracts, contract law, uh, business rights, all just kind of got carved up. Now, they say here, uh, mitigatory actions in 5331 in U.S. Um, Title 12, mitigations to risks. Oh, well, good. We're going to mitigate these financial risks. Now, maybe we get into it. Give us a little extra understanding of this. What, what was here? If the Board of Governors determines that a big bank old holding company with total consolidated assets of $250 billion or more, or a non-bank financial company supervised by the Board of Governors, poses a grave threat to the financial stability of the United States, the Board of Governors, upon affirmative vote of no fewer than two-thirds of the voting members of the council, then shall, well, limit the ability of the company to merge, acquire, or consolidate, restrict the ability of the company to offer financial products or services, require the company to terminate one or more activities, impose conditions, do this or that. So really, um, big, the biggest of the big banks, but also non-bank financial companies, of almost any size, as long as they're deemed to be a risk, they can be regulated at any time, um, which means their business activities can be uh, impinged upon. That's interesting, right? Well, so think about that level of power, and now we're going to dive into what actually happens if one of these companies gets into trouble. Now we're into what's called the Orderly Liquidation Authority. Kind of an interesting sounding title there. There's some crazy stuff in here. First up, uh, how does it actually work? So let's say there's a systemic risk determination. By the way, once a systemic risk determination is made, all this other established understanding of bankruptcy gets tossed out the window and new new laws come in, new stuff, new things get to be done. That's how I read it. I could be wrong. If you see it differently, let me know, but we'll go through the words together, see if we come to shared understanding. So systemic risk determination, well, how how is that made? Are we finally going to get Systemic risk defined? That would be awesome. First, A, they have to have a written recommendation and a determination. So the secretary, corporation, board of governors shall consider to make a written recommendation. So they got to write some stuff down described in paragraph two, which is next slides down there. Um, and so it's uh, what they would determine whether the secretary, that's the treasury secretary, should appoint the corporation. Again, that's the FDIC as receiver for financial company. Okay, and again, two-thirds vote of those people we talked about before on the council. So cases involving brokers or dealers, that's really the subject of what I wanted to get to in this series. They say in the case of a broker or dealer or in which the largest United States subsidiary as measured by total assets as of the end of the previous calendar quarter of a financial company is a broker or dealer, the commission and the board of governors at the request of the secretary or on their own initiative, shall consider whether to make the written recommendation described in paragraph two with respect to the financial company. So here's what they have to do. They say, notwithstanding any other provision uh, of federal or state law, notwithstanding is that legal term that means anything else that was written anywhere else, you can just ignore it. This takes precedence. Oh, you have a, you have a bankruptcy law you're trying to follow? Notwithstanding that, doesn't matter. Any other provision of federal or state law, we don't, oh my, let's get states' rights going on here. The secretary shall take action in accordance with this other section, which I'll talk to you about in a second. If upon the written recommendation under subsection A, the secretary in consultation with the president determines that, well, the, okay, this financial company is either in default or it's in danger of default soon. And two, get this the failure of the financial company and its resolution under otherwise applicable federal or state law, such as bankruptcy code, right, would have serious adverse effects on the financial stability in the United States. Now, you can't see it because I put the blue underline, but financial stability is not underlined. This comes, all this stuff I've pulled off of the Cornell Law website, which is really good, by the way. Thank you, Cornell, for, for putting that and keeping that. Anytime you have an underlined thing, you can click on it and it gives you more definition, right? In order to lead you to another place where there is more definition around that term. Financial stability is not underlined here or anywhere in this document. It's just not a legal definition, but 
here they're saying, this is really interesting. You know what they're saying here? They're just basically like, look, if the council says this is about financial stability, you can just take everything else and throw it out the window. This now takes law and this is the law. And all that they have to do in order to invoke this superpower is declare that the failed number two, read it over again, the failure of the financial company, its resolution under otherwise applicable federal or state law would have serious adverse effects on the financial stability in the United States. Hmm. Now, wouldn't you know it, but when we look at the case law, we're going to find out that the safe harbor provision, which is really what gets invoked here, which I haven't told you about yet, but we'll get there. It, it really could also be interpreted as a big, giant, super well-connected bank might come along and go, we would really like to take all the assets of that company over there. We think they belong to us. We have qualified financial contracts with that. So we want that stuff. And all that has to happen is, is, is invoke this law. It's like, it's yours, right? This is how things will be taken. They will be taken with a pen, not with a gun. Um, and so it's already in place. This is really astonishing to me. I, I just... I don't quite know how to describe this at this point in time, that it's just written down. There it is for you to see. What are you going to do with it? Okay. Um, three or four, you can read those at your own leisure. Five, though, says any action under Section 5384, I'll tell you about that in a second, would avoid or mitigate such adverse effects, taking into consideration the effectiveness of the action and mitigating potential adverse effects on the financial system. Hmm. The cost to the general fund of the United States and the potential to increase excessive risk taking on the parts of creditors, counterparties, and shareholders in the financial company. Um, so if the secretary just determines that uh, this any action taken under Section 5384 could avoid or, or, or you know, mitigate adverse effects or, or help prevent like this excessive risk taking. So we're going to have to look at 5384. This is just how these laws are written. It would be great if they just told you plainly with like, uh, this paragraph has to apply to that section and you go there and probably that one applies to another section. It takes a little while to piece it together. That's what we're going to do together. The P what I need you to understand here is that when systemic, um, financial, you know, uh, serious adverse events, when they say systemic financial stability, um, is in, you know, when, when that's in, uh, evoked. It takes precedence over everything else. So now what about your broker? Okay, so 5385, uh, we still have to get back to 5384, don't worry, we'll get there. So orderly liquidation of covered brokers and dealers, this falls under SIPC. Um, that is your Securities Investor Protection Corporation, SIPC. They say, well, okay, all right, if the, if the broker gets in trouble, um, appointment of SIPC as trustee, so SIPC rides in. And, but they say here under this orderly liquidation of covered brokers and dealers, section four down there reads, notwithstanding any provision of the SIPC Act of 1970. So just take that whole thing, throw it out the window, because what we want to tell you, um, notwithstanding any provision of the contrary, the rights and obligations of any party to a qualified financial contract because that term is defined in 5390C8. Uh, we'll look at that one as well. We've already covered qualified financial contracts. These are the senior claims that come above your skimpy little entitlements, right? Your security entitlement is a low grade of unsecured creditor hold. There are senior claims, which are secured creditors. And that's what they're saying here. They're saying, notwithstanding anything else we told you about in the whole SIPC Act, that thing's dead and gone. The rights and obligations of any party to a qualified financial contract to which a covered broker or dealer for which the corporation has been appointed receiver is a party shall be governed exclusively by section 5390 of this title, including the limitations and restrictions contained in 5390 C10 comma B. Um, well, that sounds pretty important. Doesn't it? 5390. We're just going to have to, <laughs> we're going to have to get there. Because they just said, look, we don't care, you know, whatever else is going on out there. We don't care about the, that crusty old securities SIPC law from 1970. We don't really care about anything else. Notwithstanding any of that, 5390 is going to govern everything. Okay, cool. So what is that? Okay, glad you asked. 
Uh, this is astonishing. This is where I don't even really know how to explain this without just going, Bob, Bob, <laughs> my mouth moving with nothing coming out but sounds uh, that, that are nonsensical. 5390, Powers and Duties of the Corporation. That's kind of blandly titled. And it says here, do, 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 we're all the way down in Section 8, Certain Qualified Financial Contracts. Um, it says here, 8, Rights of Parties to Contracts. So who are parties? Well, parties would be Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, uh, hedge fund uh, parties, right? Subject to se- subsection A8 and paragraphs 9 and 10 of this subsection, and notwithstanding any other provision of this section or any other provision in federal law or the law of any state, no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising the following. Wow. Did you hear? Did you follow? This is this is it. This is the money shot right here. Notwithstanding any other statute, law, title, article, federal or state, we don't care. This is the supreme law of the land. And it, when it says no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising, no person, person is a corporation in, in this in this model. So no person means an entity, right? So this is just legal language. This is how they do this. I'm sure uh, lots of people could explain this better from a legal standpoint, exactly what that implies. There's some subtlety there. But when they say no person shall be stayed, a stay is something that prevents you from doing something. If they, if they, uh, a court issues a stay, it holds whatever that, that thing you were about to do can't be done. It's a stay. Stop. No person shall be stopped or prohibited from exercising any right that such person has to cause the termination liquidation or acceleration you can almost turn that into rap thing it's got it's got a little alliterative no termination liquidation acceleration of any qualified financial contract with a covered financial company which arises upon the date of appointment of the corporation as receiver for such covered financial company or at any time after such appointment so this is fancy way of saying look your broker dealer or your other financial company just went into receivership it has a trustee. It has a receiver. Doesn't matter. Normally that freezes everything. If the FDIC rides in and freezes your bank on a Friday, until they resolve that, you have zero access to your funds. Like there's nowhere to log in. There's nothing you can do. But if you had a law written like this about your money in a bank, when the FDIC wrote in as receiver, this law would say, hey, you can't prevent or stay that person from exercising the termination, liquidation, or acceleration of any qualified financial. You're just like, I want to come in. I want to withdraw my money, right? If a bank goes into receivership, you have no rights. Why? Because your bank account holding puts you as an unsecured creditors. Unsecured creditors have no rights. However, secured creditors have all kinds of rights. And in this particular case, what they're saying here is that no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising their ability to terminate, liquidate, or accelerate any qualified financial contract. Accelerate means, oh yeah, that thing where, where I loaned you some money and you said you were going to pay it back in 12 months. I just found out you went into bankruptcy. I need it back today. So, and by saying they shall not be stayed or prohibited from exercising, that means this thing's in receivership. It's locked down. That receiver cannot prevent this person from coming in and saying, that loan I gave him for 12 months, I, I want it today. I need it right now. And they can't stop them from removing those funds in that moment. That's oh, really, and this is supposed to prevent excessive risk taking somehow. Who does this stuff? I mean, these people could, good gracious, uh, two, any right under any security agreement or arrangement or other credit enhancement related to one or more qualified financial cro- contracts described in clause one. Um, you can't like no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising any rights under any security agreement or contract or credit enhancement or three, no person shall be stayed or prohibited from exercising any right to offset or net out any termination value payment amount or other transfer obligation arising under or in connection with one or more contracts or agreements described in clause I there, including any master agreement for such contracts or agreements. Woo! So the trustee or the receiver has no authority to prevent these things. And as we talked about, what are these qualified financial contracts? 
Well, this is a huge, big, long, it's a giant list of things, of securities uh, that, that fall under that as well. All derivatives. This is the clause. They don't specifically say, you know what? It would be really awkward if all those side bets that these big financial entities are making with each other and using your stocks and bonds as collateral. It'd be really awkward if they couldn't tap in and get that collateral in a time of a crisis because, you know, financial stability. <laughs> that's Literally, that's the whole thing. There, I just summarized the whole thing in those 18 seconds. We'll, we'll, we'll pull those out and um, and we'll call that the, uh, the trailer for this one because that's just, that's the whole thing. Thanks for following along this far. I mean, it's just, it's gobbledygook, but once you start to pierce the veil a little bit, you're like, who wrote this and what? And it's insane. Now, this is crazy because, um, you know, as well, we talked about the rights of parties to contract. That's the A part up here, 8A. We got to go down to 8C now, which is, they say here as well, under, again, this is 5390, powers and duties of the corporation. They say here, 8C, certain transfers not avoidable. Again, notwithstanding subsection A11. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a section because that's real. You thought this was explosive? What do you hear about that? Notwithstanding subsection A11. Hold on to that thought. We're getting to that next slide. Um, uh, or A12 or C12, section 91 of this title, or, or any other provision of state or federal law <laughs> relating to the avoidance of preferential or fraudulent transfers. The corporation, whether acting as a corporation as a receive or as a receiver for a covered financial company, may not avoid any transfer of money or other property in connection with any qualified financial contract with a covered financial company. Now they say here I- exception down there, clause, you know, two clause, yeah, two down there. They say, well, you know what? Um, it that doesn't apply to any money or property that uh, was actually, if the transferee had actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud such company. Now, but you, they, they put the word intent in there, right? There are things that used to be called constructive fraudulent transfers. You didn't have to prove that somebody, in, like I knew it was going, the company was going bankrupt, so I took all the money out of it the night before. I didn't know it was going bankrupt, they could say. You don't have to prove that intent because it was constructively fraudulent, right? If you um, sold a property that you you should have known had all kinds of like liabilities and things under it and you failed to convey that, it's constructively fraudulent, they say. So here they're saying, eh, yeah, well, constructively fraudulent, that's tricky, especially when it comes to big banks and them wanting their money and derivatives contract so we're just going to kind of remove that little piece from this whole thing that's how i read this maybe there's another way to look at it but notwithstanding section a11 notwithstanding like forget about that what is a11 well avoidable transfers is 11a is uh the corporation notwithstanding subsection a11 um the corporation as receiver for any financial company may avoid a transfer of any interest or any obligation occurred by the covered financial company that was made or incurred at or within two years before the date on which the corporation was appointed receiver if these things happen. So they said, you know what? Too complicated. Nah, we'll get rid of that. So this this was a, a, a protection that used to exist, which was that if a, if you engaged, if, if there was fraud involved, you could reach back two years and everybody in the business would know that. So, oh, to avoid excessive risk-taking and bad behaviors, we're just going to remove the two-year provision. That's what that means, notwithstanding subsection A11. They removed the two-year rule on this thing. Like, ah, nah, too complicated. Financial stability might <laughs> get hit. This is what we're up against, folks. This, isn't this, a, this is shocking. You know what will be shocking is if YouTube doesn't, like, rip this down. We'll see. Okay, now we have to scoot over to the bankruptcy laws. This is Title 11, Chapter 5. Uh, creditors, the debtor and the estate. There's just those three subchapters there. Now we're getting down to the most important of them all. This amazing rules, a set of things. And we have to, this is the whole section of things in chapter five in, um, in the bankruptcy code. We're going to look at 546 limitations on avoiding powers. It's really like, what is a limitation on avoiding powers? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's just, mm. 
sometimes you have to look for the blandest language. That's where the interesting stuff is. And then there's all this other stuff. I'll only cover one of them because we don't have to do 555, 556 through 561. They're all basically the same thing. Once you understand one of them, you understand all of them. But let's read 555 together, which is the contractual right to liquidate, terminate, or accelerate a securities contract. Remember that other law that I said? You know, you you shall not, no person shall be stayed or prevented from exercising the acceleration, right? This explains it out. So that stuff was hidden over in the bank banking laws, right? Title 12. And it was tucked in very carefully over there in the UCC um, Article 8 stuff. And it's over here in the U.S. Code for Bankruptcy. But let's begin with this infamous safe harbor provision, the 546E. So we're in 546, Limitations on Avoiding Powers. Subsection E says, notwithstanding all these other sections, 544, 545, 47, 48, 548B, all these other parts of the bankruptcy code, notwithstanding those, just chuck those out. This one applies. The trustee may not avoid a transfer that is a margin payment as defined elsewhere or a settlement payment as defined elsewhere made by or to or for the benefit of a commodity broker, a forward contract merchant, a stock broker, a financial institution, kind of a broad term there, a financial participant, kind of a broad term there, or securities clearing agency, or that is a transfer made by or to or for the benefit of a commodity broker, a forward contract merchant, a stock broker, a financial institution, or a financial participant, or securities clearing agency in connection with a securities contract. So we covered those securities contracts before, and those include when we say things like forward contracts or swaps, we're talking about derivatives, right? Which number now in the quadrillions. So this is astonishing. It says, notwithstanding anything else you find in the bankruptcy code, the trustee may not avoid a siphoning of funds out of that bankrupt entity. As long as it's for these things over here, right? Because these are the senior claims. And this is how this all worked. They said, look, you know, the whole financial system almost had a complete like mortality event in 2008 and 9, it, it was almost a systemic crisis, scared them a lot. Hank Paulson marched down into the Capitol building and he had a two page piece of paper saying, I need three quarters of a trillion dollars right away, you know, or else martial law, right? Two pages, like they were scared, right? Okay, I'll grant you that. And then they said, oh, that would be terrible if that happened again. How do we prevent that from happening again? You being a normal human being would say, how about we just stop them doing that stuff they were doing? which was collateralized debt obligations and all those tranches of mortgage-backed securities and slicing and dicing and writing derivatives on things and writing derivatives on the derivatives on the derivatives so that the whole thing was just a giant mushroom cloud daisy chain waiting waiting to get smoked, right? Okay, you would say, because you're normal and I like you for being that way, you would say, let's not do that stuff. And they said, what if we made the, the backstop, the guarantee for all that risky stuff the assets of the citizens of the country. We'll use their stuff as collateral to backstop this entire daisy chain of crazy contracts and ever mushrooming liabilities and derivatives and all of that. That's what they did instead. That's what they did. And to pull that off, the infamous 546 safe harbor provision says that, yeah, you know, the trustee, no matter what happens, like if your clearing party gets in trouble or the DTCC or seed and company or your broker, if one of those things goes you can't stop the people who have been using all those collateral assets inside that entity for their own purposes. You can't stop them from reaching in and taking those out because they, they need to be made whole, right? This is just terrible behavior here. This is what happened while I was not paying close enough attention and many other people maybe are in that. I know some of you were, so congratulations, but woo, here we are now. Okay, and just in case anybody is slow like me, uh, derivatives are the senior claims. So they said here, this is in the 546. Now we're in F and G, and there's other ones that say the same thing. Notwithstanding all these other sections, the trustee may not avoid a transfer that is made by or to or for the benefit of a repo participant or financial participant in connection with repos or repurchase agreements. Section G, notwithstanding all these other sections, the trustee may not avoid a transfer made by or to for the benefit of a swap participant. Again, a form of derivative. 
So these are now listed all the way through here. I'm not going to take you through, you know, G, H, I, J, K, right? They, they just lay it out in case anybody had any misunderstanding. They told us in UCC Article 8 that qualified financial contracts have seniority in this whole thing and that um, the trustee or the receiver may not avoid the transfer. They say here in the bankruptcy code, you can't avoid the transfer. And they also said it in Title 12. Same place. So it's in three places. So if it ever comes before a judge, it, it, it's just rock solid. You can turn to any other part of the code you want to. Bankruptcy, banking, uniform commercial code on, on securities. And they all say the same thing. There are senior claims out there made by these securities contracts and also derivatives. And they've enumerated them everywhere. Here, here, and here. They have precedent. So just in case anybody was slow, like me, there it is. Um, and now we have to hustle over to uh, UCC Article 8, Part 5, Priority Among Security Interests and Entitlement Holders. We touched on this briefly, but here we go again, because now it maybe makes more sense three episodes in, except as otherwise provided in Sections B and C. I love, I love how they put this. This, this is just like, this is one of these things where you're like, that was bold move, Cotton. <laughs> I just check this out. This is fun except is otherwise provided in subsections B and C, which we'll get to in just a second. If a securities intermediary does not have sufficient interest in a particular financial asset to satisfy both its obligations to entitlement holders, that's you and me, who have security entitlements to that financial asset and its obligation to a creditor of the securities intermediary who has security interest in that same financial asset, the claims of the entitlement holders other than the creditor have priority claim over the creditor. Wow, Chris, you just told me all this time that I had the subordinate claim, and here we are. Article 8, Part 511A says, I have the senior claim. Except it says, except is otherwise provided in subsections B and C. Hmm, maybe we should read B and C together real carefully. B, a claim of a creditor of a securities intermediary who has a security interest in a financial asset held by a securities intermediary, has priority over claims of the security intermediary's entitlement holders who have security entitlements with respect to that financial asset if the creditor has control over the financial asset. Oh, yeah. Hey, if they have a claim to this stuff, but we didn't actually lend it out to them, then you have, you have the senior claim. But if we lent it out to them, or they have a qualified financial contract, such as a derivative where they're making a claim, then they actually have control over this. Control is one of the most important words. That, that word right there, if creditors control over the financial asset, their claims are above yours. Oops. <laughs> so, or C in green, if a clearing corporation does not have sufficient financial assets to satisfy both its obligations to entitlement holders, who have security entitlements with respect to financial asset and its obligation to a creditor of the clearing corporation who has a security interest in that financial asset, the claim of the creditor has priority over the claims of the entitlement holders. Translation, your entitlement has senior claim except when it doesn't and it never does. <laughs> That's what they're saying here. This is insane. I love that they had the stones to write this like, oh yeah, you totally have senior claim except under conditions B and C, which basically say there's no circumstance under which you would actually have senior claim. <laughs> you have senior claim until you don't, and you mostly don't. I mean, it's just, this is just, you can't make this up. This is class act gobbledygook here, right there. So again, section, uh, article eight, section or part five says the same thing that we have um, in all of the other sections. So isn't that a lot of fun? By the way, in part three, I'm going to be talking about, um, for, for my subscribers back at Peak Prosperity, we are going to be talking about basic defenses. Like, what does FDIC protection really mean? You need to understand that pretty carefully, as well as Treasury Direct. We're going to be talking about those actual defensive things that can be done. And we are, um, every day, every week, I've just been diving into this stuff to make sure I understand exactly what the code is and how we can and cannot be protected from it. It's gobbledygook. It needs to be changed. I'm hopeful that, that state legislatures will take their power back and just shred that Article uh, 8 of UCC. And we should also be really leaning on our 
on our legislators and congressmen to do something about this mess they've created. Because it should be a very simple question. Who owns this? It should always be a simple answer, right? You either own something or you don't. They've tried to make it sort of a halfway thing. Well, you kind of have claims. You sort of own it. Well, you sort of own it unless somebody else has a better claim than you. And nobody can answer the most basic question of all. I've talked to lots and lots of securities professionals. I've had people reaching out to me over these past few weeks. And I have this one basic question is, do we know who the senior claimants are and how many senior claims exist against any given pool of assets? And the answer is no. Or if it is known, it's not publicly known. But again, when they said the purpose is to promote greater transparency, there's zero transparency. People who are deeply, steeply invested in this don't know the answer to that simple question. And as well, they said, well, we want to limit, you know, this risk taking and we want to mitigate, you know, the sense that the government has your back, you know, if things get in trouble. But instead, they wrote a set of laws that encouraged greater amounts of risk taking. And we measure that in the total size of the pile of derivatives right now, because those are zero sum game contracts that allegedly offload risk to some other party. But by definition, it is not possible for everybody to be insured. It's not how insurance works. So derivatives pretend as if they're, they're actually insuring everybody, but they are not. They are just allowing parties to take on more risk under the certainty that they are covered. And of course, the backstop for that coverage are the collateralized assets of you and me and every other person in this nation, as well as most European nations. So that's the story we have so far. Thank you very much for listening up to this point. I know that was a big, giant mouthful, but that's as complicated as it's ever going to get. In the future, we're going to be talking about case precedents that show that all of these laws have already been battle tested in the system. So with that, thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time. And remember, come by Peak Prosperity. Bye-bye.